Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the Bible still speaks to us in surprising and subversive ways. This week, we have an interview with Jared and Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa Sharon Harper is an author of many books. She's a speaker. She's also the founder and president of Freedom Road, a consulting group that helps your organizations walk out justice in your context. She's the real deal. She walks the walk. And you're going to love hearing from her in today's episode of the Inverse Podcast. Just some housekeeping. Jared's South Africa tour starts in a couple of weeks. So why don't you check out his page for details. And there's also a new podcast by a number of our friends, including Jared's former mentor and future Inverse guest, the Reverend Tim Costello. So there's going to be a link in the show notes. Check it out. Let's jump on in. God has used you to speak to me uh, any number of times and I'm thankful mm. for your uh, your faithfulness, um, your your gentleness, your creativity, your brilliance and to have you on Inverse is a lot of fun. So the standard first question is when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, I, I love this question because it takes me right back to my childhood. Mm. Um So it was always one of like the prizes of going and hanging out with my grandmother when you actually got to go to sleep with my grandmother, like, Mm. like sleep in her bed because she always stayed up a little bit later. You know, (laughs) if you didn't, you'd have to go sleep in your bed and then the lights would go out and you go to sleep. But if you were with grandma, then grandma would always stay up later reading her Bible, which made it so that you got to stay up later too. And my grandma gave me the fam- the family Bible. This was the Bible that I always used to, like, it was my first introduction to a Bible, was laying in bed with grandma, you know, propped up with the pillow behind us. Each of us had a pillow behind us. And she would just be reading her scripture. And I think about that now, and I literally, like, tear up, thinking, yeah. wow. That's precious. Yeah. Because it's not something that... We didn't grow up going to church. I didn't. I We never went to church growing up. We went to church like every other Easter in a, on a good year, you know, like really, right? Sure. But but every time I went to grandma's house, she read her Bible before she went to sleep. And she gave me a Bible to read. And it was actually the family Bible with like, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so, like that lineage in the Bible. Um, and, um, and, and at the time I was going to St. Luke's. Uh, St. Luke's Church, which was connected to St. Barnabas School. Um, and so my job, when you know, and I must have been like six years old, five or six years old, my job was to find Luke in the Bible, hmm. and then I could go to sleep. I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. So I would literally like go through, go through, where's Luke? Where's Luke? Ah, got him. Okay, I can go to bed now. And I'd go to sleep. <laughs> I'd be fine. And grandma would still be up reading, you know? And I think it's funny now when I think about it that Luke, like that's, it feels like sovereign foundations, that Luke was the one that I was drawn to. And um, I actually thought Luke was the main man in the Bible for a while (laughs) because he was the name at my church and, you know, he's in the Bible. So, hey, and kind of towards the middle, but not, well, no, not really. Um, So, but that, so that was my first interaction with the Bible at as a book. Hmm. Um, But my first encounter with scripture, I mean, real encounter with scripture um, was actually when I was a a grad student at USC School of Theater. 
and I was going to the graduate Bible studies, um, or no, the, the Mark study, the study of the book of Mark that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is IFES internationally, had on our campus. And it's an inductive study of the scripture. In other words, they literally, and they do it manuscript style, so that they, they literally like type out the scripture, line one, line two, line three, no verses, no chapter breaks, no anything. It was, it's very similar to the way that it would have been written out by the monks, you know, just the words. And by doing that, you take away all of the interpretive overlay in the scripture, mm-hmm. and you get to see the words pop off the page for what they actually say. You see repeated themes, repeated words. You are drawn deeper into the questions that the text raises. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what is the context of this? Um, what, what, what's, what's going on politically at the time? What's going on socially at the time? Um, what would this word have meant in, at the time? Um, so that, that study was the first time that I really encountered the scripture. Wow. Um, yeah, and it it blew my mind. I fell in love with Jesus again. Wow. Yeah. And they're both they're both very powerful, but very different ways of um, learning. Like the the warmth of um, a, a maternal figure who mm-hmm. who literally um, makes space in her spirituality for you in her arms while yeah. you read the Bible. Uh, versus a university group with people who might also be coming for the first time. Yeah. And it's um, the starkness of words on a page. Literally. And you're all just sitting around a table with colored pens and rulers to draw lines between repeated words and themes. It's actually very forensic. Yeah, wow. It's a very forensic way to, to, to deal with the scripture. But because of the forensics, the science of it, um, or actually the architecture of it. You get oh. to see the architecture of the scripture. Um, you see it in another way. Yeah, I guess it yeah, is very wow. different. Yeah, two different, very different ways that I encountered Jesus. Well, one um, feels like a, a home-cooked meal, and the other feels like I don't know, like a, um, a hospital theater or, or something. Or cafeteria style. Or, or a cafeteria, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. In community, and it's a whole other feeling. I'm not really sure I like the feeling of the cafeteria. Right. Or even kind of the taste of the food. But So maybe it's not so much like that. Because right. <laughs> this, was, this was like truly the, the power of the inductive method of scripture study cannot be overstated. Sure. It can't. Yeah. Um, I think that... So often what we have learned to do in in our Western discipleship over the last several years, 30 years or so, has we have been encouraged to have quiet time with Jesus, Mm. to open up our Bible, kind of put our finger down and see what the Bible has to say to us today, almost like a Ouija board, Mm. (laughs) right? But, But actually, the scripture was written in the context of community. Yeah. For communities. So when they heard the scripture, they wouldn't actually have read it. They would have heard it and they would have heard it in the context of community. Mm. And it would have been speaking to that communal context. So that was something that was so powerful. That's one of the things that was so powerful about the inductive manuscript style of study that InterVarsity promotes is that it is a communal experience. And because of the multi-ethnic nature of that fellowship, um, 
you really got a very diverse read. So somebody over here might see something that someone over here didn't see. Mm. Um, and, you know, and then, you know, of course, all the politics comes into play. If that person's new, you may not really trust what they had to say, as opposed to this person who owns four <laughs> Bibles, you know, and a Bible commentary. But, but in some ways, the inductive study levels the playing field because what it says is there is no authority that is greater than the text itself. So what your pastor told you, it says, does not hold any weight in that kind of a setting. Mm. What Even what the Bible dictionary says doesn't hold weight in that kind of a setting. If the scripture itself is actually saying, according to the grammar, according to the context, according to the repeated words, according to all of these things that help us discern what words on a page mean, if those words on a page are saying something different than this commentary is saying, the words on the page win. Wow. So yeah. with either of those two evocative experiences, was the scriptures encountered as something that turns the world upside down or props the world as it is up? Oh, no, it turns it upside down. In, in both? I mean, I think that that's interesting. I mean, I think... I mean, how much, how much can looking for Luke do? (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, that literally was the extent of my scripture study with my grandmother was looking for the book of Luke and then going to sleep when I found it. So I'm not sure how much that would actually impact the world. Um, It made me feel comfortable. Like, oh, he's still there. Like (laughs) he hasn't been taken out of the book this, you know, yet. So in some ways, I guess there was a stabilizing force about that. And yet Um, you fell asleep in the shadow of your grandmother's prayers. Mm. As this book that was so dear to her, she read it and it read her. And mm. so almost by osmosis, you did have that. I mean, there is a tenderness of that yeah, picture. that A passing on of faith. Well, I wonder if um, showing mm. up at a university setting makes sense because of the warmth of grandma. Mm. Like, well, mm. why go to this university group if, if Easter is like mm. um, when you show up on a good year? Uh, right. If it wasn't for the love and faithfulness and prayers of, of grandma. Right? No, that's exactly right. Oh, I get it. Yeah. So it's kind of like grandma prayed me to that university. Group wow. Yeah, yeah. In many ways. She did. She actually laid the foundations through those, those times of her own scripture study, modeling it for me, mm-hmm. a modeling of, of the value and also the personal relationship with the scripture itself. Mm. So, I mean, I think that... And Lisa, do you think when you showed up to the university group that you read through your grandmother's eyes or just your grandmother's prayers got you there? Like at what stage, Mm. like in asking the question, did it prop the world up as it is or did it turn the world upside down? I know there's varying degrees of that for people. Initially, Mm -hmm. what degrees was that for you? That's really, it's a good question. I mean, I think initially with that university group, and the thing is I had already been a Christian for many years before I mm. went there. I, I became a Christian in 1983. Mm. Um, but this 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 university group, this was grad school, and this was 1993. So I'd already been a Christian literally for 10 years. Mm. But I was having a first encounter with the scripture. Right, yeah, yeah. Because in my experience of my faith, it was youth group. It was fun and games. It was singing songs. It was camping. 
But it wasn't really, it really wasn't time around the scripture, which is kind of deep. Mm. Um, and even in college, when there was like a depth of discipleship that was happening, it wasn't really around the actual Bible, mm. you know, with its pages. Mm. It was around fill in the blank books, right? Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like fill in the blank books and training and how to evangelize. But what am I evangelizing into? I don't even know the scripture, right? Like I know, I know, I know memory verses that I have had to learn by rote Mm -hmm. in this, in this, um, uh, discipleship kind of space in college, but I don't really know the scripture. So I think that the thing that was so powerful about this grad school experience of the scripture, which actually was with undergrads, it wasn't only graduate students, Mm -hmm. Um, it was just the whole fellowship, intervarsity fellowship at, at USC. My the experience of that that was so revolutionary was being introduced to the person of Jesus on the page, like on the actual pages, mm. and seeing what Jesus does, mm. what he what he does because it's Mark, right? Mark is mm-hmm. the shortest sure. of all of the Gospels, simply because it doesn't really pay a whole lot of attention to what Jesus says, but it says everything about what he does and then he did this and immediately immediately immediately, immediately. right and immediately and immediately (laughs) and then he did this and then he did this and then they did this and then they were there and then they were there and so you're seeing what he does Mm. and as i saw what he did and took into consideration the context which i still don't think i fully understood the whole political context we really didn't get Mm. um but i i did understand the radical nature of the fact that Jesus went to the families, to the family of the person he had just called in Peter. Like he called Peter and then immediately he went to Peter's mother who was sick and healed her. Mm. Wow. What does it look like then for us to come to Jesus and know that Jesus cares about our families? He wants to heal our families, Mm. you know? Or in the next breath then, they, he goes out and now he's healing all these people. And the next thing you know, he has the four people who bring their, their friend to him on a stretcher, you know, like they lower him through the roof. What does it look like for us to have that kind of faith? Like placing ourselves in the story, trying to understand the dynamics of the story. Um, it made it come to life and it made Jesus come to life mm. in a way that was, um, revolutionary for me. And wow. so, so like I, I, my, my witness after that, after that encounter with scripture, witnessing became becoming a witness to who Jesus is in the world, as opposed to sharing the four spiritual laws. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So having a, a theory of salvation in which Jesus features versus a story of Jesus in which salvation expresses itself in any number of... So salvation to Peter's house looks like the healing of Peter's mother, mm-hmm. but salvation also looks like the calling of Peter. That That's a... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I was trying to think as you were explaining it, what would a Christianity look like that doesn't know what Jesus does? <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine that. Well, I think it looks like a lot of, yeah, hypothetically, hypothetically what could that, was... that possibly look like 
I think it looks like a lot of the a lot of the church right now. Yeah. Because unfortunately, a lot of the church right now does not have relationship with the scripture. It's one of the things that I've I've said um, often in the last several years is that in evangelicalism in particular, and that's my that's where I came to faith is in mm. that stream of the faith. Yeah. Um, within evangelicalism, we have become divorced from three major things. We've become divorced from each other, from the other, because our enclavish, the way that our churches form has been formed around like attracting like, because it's all about building big shiny boxes, building empire, building big churches. And in the building of big churches or big conferences, the theory that has really worked has been like attracts like. It's church growth theory from back in 1980s and 90s. And so that has created ethnic enclaves that then have, and also class enclaves, yes. um, yeah. that have very, very little capacity to see the scripture apart from their own experience mm. because they're not challenged by any kind of experience that's not like their own. Mm. So we've become divorced from the other, mm -hmm. the, the proverbial other. We've also become divorced from the scripture Yes. Itself. Yeah. We have no relationship with the scripture outside of the Ouija board experience. Hmm. The open it up, put your finger down. Ooh, what does the scripture say to me today? Versus what does the scripture say? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right? What is what does it say? Like who what did this the what did it has writers, actual writers. I literally used to think, I, I literally, the way that people talked about it before, I used to think that the scripture was like literally penned by God, like, wow. and other people kind of were just kind of there. <laughs> like, I didn't know who penned it. And, and to think that there was an actual author of, the, of a particular book in the scripture felt, it actually felt um, heretical to me. Like, how dare you say the scripture is not holy? It wasn't written by God. No, that's not. That's not the case. That's not how inspiration that's, works. That's, that's not right, how yeah. inspiration, exactly. Inspiration comes through humanity mm. onto the page. Mm. But it is also shaped. God chooses particular people yeah. to speak through because of their experience, yeah. not in spite of it. Yeah. So what does it say then? Now I understand. What does it say then that every single author of the scripture, every one, every Every single person who wrote or people who wrote any one of the books of the Bible was colonized. Mm. What does it say about what God wants to communicate to the world through this text that every single one of the authors was either colonized or under threat of being colonized, like mm -hmm. David and Solomon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they were kings, but they were kings of a dinky kingdom that kept That's getting right. sacked. <laughs> they kept getting sacked. That's the whole reason we have the Assyrian siege and the mm -hmm. Babylonian siege. And, you know, yeah. so what does it say about what God wants to communicate through this text that God chose in every single case? Someone who was oppressed. So Lisa, what I hear you naming is not just uh, a Christianity that doesn't know what Jesus does. So doesn't know what salvation is other than theories separated. But it's also Christianity um, that doesn't know where Christianity comes from. Like the location, the like 
who, that God has chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith is true of all scripture, not just a passage in James. That That's this is the exactly nature of it. <laughs> that this is a book written from below as yes. a gift from above. And that says something about above that God chooses those below. Yeah. Am I hearing you right? No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that there's a there's um, there's a lot we've missed in the scripture mm. because we have conceived of it as having been written from on high, mm-hmm. disconnected from earth itself, yeah. disconnected from time and space and context. Mm. And we did that. I mean, it's not that's it's not like uh, that. Uh, that conception of the scripture is one that is like a holy scripture. That is something that came with the enlightenment, with the enlightenment. Yeah. It's something that came with the scientific method. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that came as we began to understand science in the enlightenment period, we began to think of truth or fact as being something that can be proved in any context. And so therefore, if something is contextual, then it must not be true for all. So then we thought, well, the scripture can't be contextual if it's going to be true for all. So then we we lift Jesus from his context. Mm-hmm. And we make like Starbucks Jesus yep. or we make, you know, big shiny box Jesus yep. as opposed to Jesus who was a part of a people who lived on particular land at particular time under particular occupation by Rome. Mm-hmm. And that Jesus is the one who said, repent and believe. Mm. The kingdom of God is near. Mm. It's that Jesus in that context who said that. So I'm very aware that um, many people will know exactly who you are. They will have read a very good gospel that have read you for years in Sojourners magazine or on God's politics website. Um, uh, they would have uh, seen you in the media Um I just seen Black Klansmen and I couldn't help but think mm. of you and Cornell West um, with those uh, end scenes um, and the, the footage that was shown. And people, I mean, millions of people around the world saw mm. yourself, Dr. Cornell West, other Christian leaders in the, the middle of um, that horrific reality um, and this clashing point in American society but for those who aren't aware um Mm. you're a black woman from the u.s who has um cherokee ancestry as part of your own personal story when you talk about american evangelicalism and the context of like attracts like you're you're not like for <laughs> the eighty one percent. I am not like yeah. Well, like evangelicals who voted for Trump. Yeah, um, uh, you, you don't fit that box. That's the, right. The, the Starbucks mm-hmm. Jesus was never good news to you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, well, I mean, actually, Starbucks Jesus was really great news to me when I was less aware of who I am well, say more in about this that, world Lisa, and that history. Yeah. How how is um, the little we get of Jesus, even in Starbucks, Jesus, how is that still good news? Like how, how is, mm. um, and then what did it mean? I don't know, to, to encounter the Jesus that is actually found in his context. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, boy, that's a, it's a kind of a deep question. I mean, first of all, I would say, 
I do. I identify not as black. I identify mm -hmm. as African American, mm -hmm. and with with a number of different ethnic heritages as well, but mm -hmm. primarily African American. And I say not black because black is a racial categorization mm -hmm. that was created to do one thing, just like whiteness was created to do sure. one thing. These are racial categorizations created to define who could exercise dominion on land mm. at a particular time in a particular place. Mm. And for me, that time was the time of the, of the, you know, the founding of the United States and the place was, was the United States of America. Um, and, and forgive me, I should have allowed you, yourself to self-describe rather than... Oh, that's okay. Yeah. yeah, that's mansplaining. You know, you've repented, we're good. <laughs> No, we're cool, we're cool, we're cool, we're cool. So uh, it's a joke. It's called a joke. That's so, um, so, but what we, what, what, what we, what, what I've come to understand is that we are our families. The family who come, who's come before us has really laid the groundwork for who we are. And we simply carry them forward into the next round of our family being on earth. Hmm. Um, and we are influenced by everything that they have experienced before. And so that's why I say African-American, not black, because sure. I reject what is actually a theological as well as a legal construct, a, a political construct that tells me that I'm not created to exercise dominion on land. Hmm. I am a human being, and therefore I am created to exercise dominion on in the, in the United States and on earth. And um, anyway, so all of that to say, all of that to say that. Mm. Um, but, you know, how was the gospel, how was the scripture good news to me before I understood who I was? I, I would actually say that it was the scripture that helped me to understand who I am, that helped mm. me to, that helps me to understand my um, my ancestors better, yeah. their struggle better. Um, before that time, when I was, I call whiteified, when I had been whiteified, mm. you know, I straightened my hair and I cut bangs that stuck out like that because it didn't quite work. Um, and <laughs> and imagine it. And then, you know, the tight jeans and the black eyeliner. We're talking about 1980s and, you know, <laughs> in um, Cape May, New Jersey. Um, you know, and my faith was not grounded in scripture. It was grounded in the community, the youth group that I was a part of. Mm. Um, and I think that to some degree, what I got from that community was a, a very strong sense of belonging. Mm. Actually, they were, they loved me. They loved me well. Um, but there were limits to their capacity because they had not really done the work of understanding the impact of race and racialization on the way they saw the world or what they could understand of my my own family's experience and my experience as a result. And so those limitations left something to be desired. But it was in the context, actually, of a white evangelical organization that I did my very first summer mission project and the second one. The first one was down Wildwood, New Jersey, a beach project where I shared the four spiritual laws with 25 people and had them pray the prayer over the course of a summer Actually, I prayed it. I, I shared it with many more, and twenty people, five people, actually prayed the prayer over the course of a summer. But then, like two summers later, I went to New York City, and it was in New York City that I encountered P. 
people of color again, hmm. which is kind of funny. Wow. The only people of color that I knew in Cape May was my family. Um, and so the only choice to really, um, for, within my sphere to come to faith was within a white evangelical church setting. Cause that's the only church that I, I went to. Um, but in, it was in college when I went on a summer mission project to New York city that I was an, introduced to John Perkins hmm. and his book with justice for all. And all of a sudden I started reading these stories of people who come from similar roots as me mm. um, and experienced similar things that couldn't be explained in this white evangelical setting. Um, the foundations that my my parents laid for me as a child, my mom singing um, uh, black spirituals to me as the bedtime lullaby going to sleep, wow. right? Um, began to spring to life again. Um, my mom and dad sitting all of us down in front of a TV and watching Alex Haley's Roots. Mm. You know, back in 1970, I guess 77, 76 when it first came out. Mm. And I was like six, seven years old. <laughs> it's like, wow. you know what I mean? But still, I watched this this story of the enslavement of our people. And I understood that then. But I had nothing to speak to it down in Cape May until I went to college and went on this summer mission project to New York City and encountered the first people of color that I could see through God's eyes and I could see that God loves us. Mm. I could see that God created us as is. I could see that God has, you know how this, the four spiritual law says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I could see that actually God does have a wonderful plan for our lives, mm. but there's something that gets in the way of those plans being being wrought and it's not just our personal sin mm. it's also oppression yeah systemic oppression yeah so there's um the good news as i've come to understand it is that the king of the kingdom of god has come in order to confront the kingdoms of men mm. that put barriers in front of certain people groups to recognizing and realizing their full humanity on earth, yeah. their full call and capacity to exercise dominion on earth. Um, and, and, and Jesus is that King. Mm. And so when Jesus says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, what Jesus is saying is repent of the ways that you have been following the course of the world that actually believes that some people are created in the image of God and others aren't. Sure. That actually believes that some people are created to exercise dominion in the world and others are not. Mm. Um, and repent and be free, may be, be liberated yeah. to actually live fully into the call of who you were created to be. Yeah. So that's that. Um, that's been incredibly life-giving and, and actually um, incredibly freeing yeah. uh, for my own personal call. And good news. And good news, exactly. Lisa, yeah. would you lead us in a Bible study that um, shows us how the scriptures can turn our world upside down? Would you mm. choose a passage and open up for us? Uh, what oh, that wow, might cool. Offer? Yes, I, I would love to. <laughs> 
Yes. Um, so let's turn to Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1, what you see is you see this passage that when I was doing um, the study of it for my book, The Very Good Gospel, I was, um, you know, sat down and really wanted to do some deep study about the context because that's important. You have to understand the context to know why was this thing written in the first place? Yeah. What's the point? What is the author or authors? What are they trying to communicate? Um, you can't understand the text until you know what the author was trying to communicate. Come on, right? Yeah. So when I was first doing this study for Genesis, I encountered that there are, are multiple theories about who wrote this book, right? In some theories, Moses wrote it, the whole thing. Um, and then Including the, his death. Including his own death. I know, I know, right? <laughs> Which is a little bit hard to believe. But I don't. I actually, I will, you know, um, all cards on the table. I don't. I actually, it's not the theory that I ascribe to. But there are good people who ascribe to that theory. And, and I'm sure that they have great reasoning behind it. I'm and not going to question that. It's also fascinating that we assume that the ancients were fundamentalists. <laughs> like when, do you know what I mean? Like when I do, um, yeah. Like at the end of Luke on the Emmaus road, where it says starting with Moses, mm -hmm. in the Hebraic imaginary, um, there were certain figures were, which were hermeneutical keys for reading the whole story, i.e., that um, just as um, uh, many Christian traditions insist you must read all the Scripture through Jesus, mm -hmm. many Jewish traditions insist that you must read. Torah through Moses. Mm. And so the whole thing about Moses wrote Torah was mm -hmm. an imaginative invitation into you can't understand this story of liberation mm -hmm. without understanding Moses' own story and making it mm -hmm. your own. And we miss that. Mm -hmm. um, and we turn it into Moses literally wrote about his own death. Right. Well, that's wow. That's really good. I mean, I think that the thing that, the thing that, um, well, the thing, the thing that I get from that is that. Uh, when we are when we are uh, approaching the scripture, it's not helpful when we overlay on top of the scripture things that are not from that text. Hmm. And this comes directly from my university training, right? Like right. from that inductive manuscript style. So I'm always looking for what does the text itself hmm. say? Hmm. What does the text? And when I asked that question, one of the reasons why I landed on not believing that Moses wrote this text is because there's nowhere in the text itself that it says Moses wrote the text. <laughs> nowhere. I looked nowhere in this text. Does it say Moses wrote this text? Mm. So I asked the question, why, why do we believe that? Some people will literally will point to the, to the, to the title of the text because in some King James versions of the text, it says Genesis, according to Moses, <laughs> you know, like the book of according to Moses, like, but that's the title that was given to it by some monk who that's came right. thousands yeah. of years later, yeah. you know, yeah. not not necessarily the text itself. So what does the text say? The text says in the beginning, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. OK, so let's just stop there for a second. I love this text. So when I was studying this, I got I was I. I was studying the context of the actual writing of the text, and then I read that. The context of the writing, if it was the Babylon, the, um, the, the priests coming out of Babylon, the context then is priests who are about to enter into their own rule in the temple, and they have been oppressed. They have been enslaved mm. 
for 70 years, five generations. If you consider like, you know, how often they had children at about 13, like 13 was kind of their time to have new kids, like every generation. So five generations in captivity, enslaved, told they ain't nobody, but told that they don't have agency. They don't have the right to agency. And if they're coming out of Babylon, the Babylonian worldview says a, a few things that are important here. One, that humanity, all of humanity, was created to be enslaved to the gods. Hmm. So these priests who are writing this text are coming out of 70 years of soaking in a worldview that told them they were created to be slaves of the gods. Hmm. And where do these gods live in the Babylonian worldview? The gods live in the waters. Hmm. Yeah. The gods live in the river. Mm. The gods live um, in the deep. Mm. And here on the first, so so I'm telling you, so I'm, I'm, I'm like taking this in. And by the way, the, the creation story of the Babylonians is called Enuma Elish, right? Mm. So in, in Enuma Elish, you have the story of really all of these gods who are warring for, for supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mar, uh, Marduk is going up against Tiamat, yeah. right? And, and Tiamat creates all these sea monsters in order to kill Marduk and also, but Marduk gets all the rest of the gods to side with him and says, but hey, if I win, then I get to be supreme. And so, and he does win. And, and so, you know, he's like, hey, so I am, I am the supreme god. God, who's the grandmother of the freshwater. And like, yes. yeah, it's, so right. it, you're getting um, geography, um, mythology that actually says not only are human slaves and have no dignity, uh, but actually only the oppressor, the, the king has dignity. And this is actually how the lay of the land literally works. Yeah. This is how we know where we are because geography is actually the politics that we, it's the, wow. it's the songs that kids have sung to them. Like you had spiritual sung to you. That's yes. So deep. Wow. In it is. Imagination. Wow. And think about that. Like you have in this story, Marduk wins. He then becomes the prototype for what it looks like to exercise dominion. Yes. Yeah. Right? It looks like suppression. It looks like oppression. It looks like domination. Mm. It looks like, um, it looks like, you know, uh, po- politicizing in order to, or politicking in order to win, win power. Okay. It looks all, all those things. But think about it. They live in the deep. And here on the, in the first line of the creation story that these these priests who are exiting 70 years under the rule of people who believed that worldview, they say, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. Mm. The deep, the waters, mm. darkness covered the face of the place where the gods of our oppressors live. Hmm. And darkness here, when you when you translate it, literally means destruction. Wow. Wow. It means basically all the D words. It means destruction. It means desolation. It means all of these things that um, are, are uh, destroyed. But this is so deep, right? So, so here you have... In the midst of of this time of them exiting, they are making commentary. Mm. That's what they're doing. They are commenting 
on the worldview of their oppressors. Mm. And that blew my mind. In the first passage, so you have the earth was a formless void. And of course, void is emptiness, darkness being destruction, desolation, covered the face of the deep. And the deep, the deep is literally the waters, the place where um, where Marduk and Tiamat lived. Mm-hmm. It's They were, and, and the sea monsters, it's where the sea monsters lived there too. While a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And so you get this picture of the spirit of God, the wind of God, kind of going shh. You know, kind of sweeping over the waters. Mm. You know, but actually, it wasn't like that. That word, that word, um, hovered is actually another word for it, right? While the wind of God swept over, it's actually a word like hovered is much more accurate. And it's as a chick hovers over her eggs. Mm. It's more like this brooding. It's like wow. a brooding. It's like, like, like think about chick when they're ready ready to lay the egg ready to give birth it's actually a picture of god ready to give birth into the world and god is doing that hovering over the waters over the deep and also in poetry which this is one huge epic poem right in poetry position matters location matters so over i started thinking about that word over the supreme God, and there, and also that word for God is not just God; it's supreme God. Mm-hmm. So here you have a story. The creation story of the of Enuma Elish is all about God's warring for supremacy. That's right. And there, in in this creation story, they begin with the supreme God mm-hmm. is over, not under, not in, not to the side, over the land, the home of the gods of their oppressors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and what does that God do? Hovering over as if to give birth, ready to give birth. God says, let there be light. In other words, what God does is cuts the darkness. Hmm. God cuts the darkness. Hmm. God limits it. God hems it in with light. Hmm. And that, and I I could see this, of course, they would actually understand this. The writers of this text would understand this because they have been through 70 years of oppression, and now it is about to end. Yeah. They are entering into their own new rule. Yeah. Their oppression has come to an end. Yeah. They understand the light. Yeah. They understand the, the limitation of darkness, of desolation, of destruction. And it's also fascinating in terms of, I mean, the, the oppressive stories, the lies that have been told to believe is deicide of the female deity, as in how we handle the feminine, is that it has to be overpowered, suppressed, Mm. killed, and it's out of the body of Tiamat, Mm. out of her ribcage, literally creation, Mm. is is the the blood and the ribcage spread out, and this is the land. And here you have these feminine images being used for um, the supreme god yeah and there is there is no destruction of the feminine there's no suppression of the feminine there's Mm no um affirmation of a a masculine over above through violence instead it's this picture of as you put it the the brooding the giving birth the giving birth um this is a, a a radical affirmation of what is actually denied and suppressed in in um sick ways that were played out in the same way that we have passion plays um the 
these were passion plays in the Babylonian Empire where people would act out mm. the killing of female deity to establish a male deity who mm. the king represented throughout all of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And these people are telling like such a subversive story. Like yeah. in, in these first verses, there's a subversion of That's patriarchy. Right. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that this entire thing is subversive. Hmm. So now let's, let's skip forward because you can get so much between now and there. And in fact, even the fact that God creates the sea monsters, God created the sea monsters and said, it is good. Yeah. Right? So the sea monsters were actually beings that, that there were myths you know, crafted around how horrible they were. They were the supreme, like, uh, source of fear of the Hebrew people. They huh. they feared the sea monsters, and yet here they are, here, God. So the supreme God created them. And in the next breath, um, on verse 26, God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals that and creeping things that creep across, uh, upon the earth. So here you have, you have that supreme God actually democratizing yeah. power. Yes. Whereas before... Uh, Marduk took power to himself, right? The absolute, and, absolutizing the the authoritarian, the dictatorship. Exactly. Yeah. And what these, what the what the writers of Genesis and Genesis one in particular, what they do, these priests who are about to enter into their own power, into their yeah. own rule, and they could have consolidated power for themselves because that's how it had been done in every civilization mm. up to that point. Nobody would have faulted them if they had said. Um, you know, and God said, let these priests have power because that's what the way that everybody had done yeah. it. But instead, what they do in their creation story is they say, no, in, in what, what the Lord has done has democratized power mm -hmm. and let all humanity have and um, be made in the image of God and let them have dominion. Let all humanity have dominion. In other words, let us all be able to exercise agency yeah. in the world in order to make choices that impact the world. We are not created, none of us, no humanity. It, it, as opposed to the, the, the worldview of the Babylonians, their oppressors, they were not created to be enslaved to the gods. Mm. Instead, they were created in the image of God. Yeah. They were all of them created in the image in order to exercise co-dominion yeah. with God. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, that is revolutionary yeah. on the first page of the Bible. Yeah. On the first page. And as you're describing it, Lisa, it's so obvious that the subversion of these Babylonian stories have again been subverted, that we now use um, what undid those empires to prop up empires that mm. verses about dominion are used to back out domination wow, instead of yeah. understanding that when everybody shares in dominion, no one is dominated. Right. There is no domination if everybody shares it. It makes sense to the story that says that right. um, the king who represents Marduk is to dominate all the rest who and everybody is slaves of the gods. Mm -hmm. But when everybody is children of God, when everybody are icons, or images of God, mm -hmm. that is a story that these two stories can't coexist. 
And yet we live in a reality where there are so many forms of Christianity that use these stories to actually prop up and say prayers yeah. for the predatory powers that prey upon the people who are denied that the image of God exists in them. And yes. that's why they're systematically made to fill up our prisons and end up in the poorest mm-hmm. rung of society. And mm-hmm. this isn't an accident. The stories that we tell animate the society that we end up seeing. Yes, and there's a way that what we what, what you're what I what I hear you doing and what I think is brilliant is which is really true is that the scripture has been twisted so that we are actually not following God. We're following Marduk. Yeah. Like we are we are not actually following Jesus because Jesus is the one who said Repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of men, mm. the kingdom of God. And the, th- the thing is, is that another piece of this is that, uh, that, that the scripture says we are made in the likeness of God. We are mm. not God. Mm. So being made in the likeness of God, meaning that we are, we are separate. God is the one who is king here, not us. Mm. Um, we are we are made in God's image, and therefore we all have the inherent dignity that would normally be bestowed on a king or a queen alone. Mm. But we are not God. God is the king. Yes. And as a result, then we actually we have to exercise humility and follow that queen, that king or that queen. We don't need to actually. Um, we don't get to determine what justice is. We don't get to determine what is true. And I've never connected this because I'm thinking about, um, because, you know, us Anabaptist types, we usually cheat and go, because in the end, Jesus, right? right, So (laughs) so dominion has to look like Jesus. Jesus, Like it has to look like the kind of power we see at the cross that raised Jesus from the dead. Mm -hmm. But even in this text, the God who's described, um, this, this feminine power that broods and is ready to give birth, if that's what dominion looks like in verse one and two. Right. Guess what's happening when we get down to, what, 25, 26, where it's saying this is the image of what is it for us to be creators who are childbearers of a new world? Right, exactly. Right? right. If we are, if we then exercise dominion in the likeness of God, mm. then we reflect the kind of dominion that God actually, God demonstrates in the verses that come before. And the kind of dominion that God demonstrates in the verses that come before is a kind of dominion that is generous. Hmm. It's a kind of dominion that cares for. Yeah. It's a, it's, it is literally, um, uh, it, is, it is a caring dominion. Hmm. It is one that provides for all of God's creation. It wow. is one that cares ultimately, most important, about the wellness of the relationships within all of God's creation. Say more about that, the relationship in creation. So if you actually, if you go a little bit further in the text, which is um, go to the end of Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 31, it says, God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good. Now, those words, that word good is actually mentioned seven times in the text, right? Mm. And the last time it's very good. Mm. Now that word good is the word tov, right? Mm. So tov, you'll see every single time it comes um, kind of at the end of a thought, between thoughts. That's because tov, the way that it's used in Hebrew, in Hebrew, is it's usually found in the context of Hebrew poetry. It's one of the reasons why we know this is a poem, an epic poem, yeah. is that tov usually occurs in the context of epic Hebrew poetry. It also occurs between breaths. 
It's one of those things that literally links breaths, links thoughts. So, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so tough, or so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so good, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so good, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, it's good, so-and-so and so it's very good, right? So very good, me'od, tov me'od, means it's emphatically good. Yeah. It's forcefully good, abundant, overflowingly good. But that word tov is not talking about the thing itself. Yeah. It's not concerned that the Hebrews would not have been concerned with the thing itself. They wouldn't have located goodness inside the thing. So it wasn't saying that, you know, I like to say, that's a really good walrus over there that I just made, right? Like that's not, that wasn't their concern. Yeah. The concern was the relationship, the ties between things, mm. because that's where Tav lives. Mm. It lives between things. Mm. So when, when God looked around at the end of this, epic Hebrew poem and said, this is very good. The this that God was concerned with was the relatedness between things. Wow. So the picture of the kingdom or kingdom of God is the picture of emphatic wellness, of relatedness, of yes. relationships yeah. between all parts of creation. Yes. So that there's a relationship between the sun and humanity. Yeah. S-U-N, mm -hmm. and humanity. There's a relationship between us and the rest of creation. We actually literally get it. I mean, Jesus, I mean, Jesus, God literally, the, the, the text writers and God um, through the text writers says, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So there's a relationship that's mm -hmm. established between vegetation yeah. And humanity. Yeah. There's a relationship between the sun and the moon and the stars. Which is and all of humanity. Incredible, isn't it? Like um, one to gather a light to govern the night and yes. the day. That again, unlike um, and uh, I was reading Gregory of Nyssa, you know, writing from the fourth century, mm. and he's throwing shade at those who think um, that. Uh, this is is literal and and is oh, to be yeah. taken. I mean, so he's you know one of the yeah. early church patristic writers wow. saying it's ridiculous that of course they knew that the sun comes before light, but the reason why we find it in verse fourteen is that the sun is one of the gods that actually backs up the reign of mm. Marduk, which legitimizes the rule of the king mm. to oppress all in that kingdom. Wow! So the reason, there you go. wow. What I find incredible, Lisa, to pay attention and bring it back to what you're saying about verse 1 and 2 and how it connects to verse 26, mm -hmm. is that something of how God reigns, yes. something of, of this, this brooding, creative spirit, mm -hmm. is that these things which are seen as enemies aren't eliminated. Right. they're put into proper relationship. Yes. Right? That's right. And they are hemmed in. So, so they... And, and say more about, because yeah. I think the ecological implications of a hemming which sounds like a limiting but it is a limiting but... it's a limiting god limits the limits the deep yeah. the deep was the place of where the where the babylonians gods yeah. lives right yeah but god creates land hems in the deep yeah. limits the deep by by creating land limits the darkness and destruction by creating light yeah right so and... so god does not wait, wait real quick 
in the creation story, God could very easily have eliminated darkness, mm. have actually eliminated the deep, mm-hmm. like created a world where there is no source of fear, yeah. where there is no source of destruction. God could have done that. Yeah. But in this epic poem, part of the point that, that, the, that the authors are making is that the kind of governance that God, um, that, that, that the supreme God um, uh, exacts is a governance that does not eliminate darkness, but rather limits it. Yes. And I think actually we find God in the darkness. Yes. That God is over the darkness. Yes. It's not, this is not some supernatural, like fairy tale. Yeah. This is real. This is real. Yeah. And in the real world, there is darkness. Yeah. And we have to be able to find God in the darkness. Mm. And what God, what what this text tells us, these people who have been oppressed for 70 years, they say to us, God is over the darkness. Yes. God is more supreme yeah. than even the deep. Mm. God is more supreme. God can come in and will come in and limit our oppression. Yeah. And I go back as an African-American, mm. as somebody whose, whose ancestors were enslaved and, and really who were on American soil from 1680 at least, all the way to present. And from 1680 to, to 1865 were anything between an indentured servant to an enslaved person. And I know that with 200 years, 200 years of, 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 uh, of struggle, how Im- impossible it could have Im- they could have imagined that slavery would ever end mm. they could have can you imagine even the thought that god or somebody could end slavery they couldn't even imagine that to yeah. be true it would be like saying that well one day there will be no internet anymore mm. i mean we can't even imagine that's how that's how pervasive slavery was yeah. it was the vehicle for economic gain for nations Throughout Europe, whole nations got their got their riches from slavery. There's no way that's going to end. But God ended it. Yeah. But God ended it. Yeah. Because that's what God does. God limits the darkness. God puts boundaries on yeah. it. Yeah. And, and and seeing through through that lens, and it's one of the questions that I often ask is, um, uh, given your life experience, um, what gift would you offer others to mm-hmm. to read? The Bible in such ways that it turns the world upside down, mm-hmm. uh, but this isn't just the Hebrew people's story. This is your people's story. Oh yeah, that's... this is mm-hmm. uh, like uh, the way that Cornell West puts it is that um, the gift of the Black Church tradition to the world is that we did not produce uh, an Al Qaeda um, in response to terrorism. We produced a Fannie Lou Hamer, and, and what does it mm-hmm. mean that, like, mm-hmm. in re- response to this kind of horror? Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing that there is a place not to eliminate the enemy because that is still, if if the the monsters that mm-hmm. swim mm-hmm. in the deep of our own lives were to be eliminated, that's the kind of Messiah that Marduk is. It's mm-hmm. not the kind of Messiah Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And, and what does this Elohim of, of brooding um, uh, feminine creativity, birthing energy mean that... There is a place for that which scares us in its right place that we can live in peace with it and be unafraid. 
I think that what that what that place is is a place where you actually believe that God is God. Yeah. Wow. You if you feel the need to eliminate that which makes you afraid, then you are actually feeling the need to become God. Mm-hmm. But if you understand that you can ex- coexist with the sea monsters. Wow. Because God is there with you. Yeah. Then you are safe hmm. because God is between you and the sea monsters. Hmm. God is governing the relationship between you and the sea monsters. Then you don't have anything to fear because God is here. And it would be understandable that if you're coming out of that slavery to write, here's a story about how my God kills your God, mm-hmm. about my God destroys your gods, about how my, and yet that's the very nature of the gods that they've been taught to worship. Right. And part of the articulation of freedom in, in the poetry of this first creation story that kicks off page one of the Bible is a different is a different form of salvation. Exactly. Easy. And you see it, you see it, you see it. It's not just on the first page, right? Hmm. You also see it with, with David and Goliath. You see that he doesn't actually go out and kill Goliath. I mean, mm-hmm. he knocks him down with a stone, or maybe he does kill Goliath, but he doesn't kill all the Philistines, yeah. right? He doesn't, um, we don't see God eliminate. And when they do, they actually, there's there's famine in the land, and they have to make recompense because they've done something wrong yeah. when they kill everybody. Yeah. Um, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, could have lopped off, well, he could have killed all of them. Yeah. He could have literally 10, gone to angels. war, could yeah. have called down 10,000 angels and gone to town, but he doesn't. And when Peter does lop off the ear of, of Malchus, he takes the ear and puts it back on. Why? Because God, the Supreme God, Jesus, who is God incarnate, is not a God who eliminates the darkness, but rather stands in the midst and therefore gives us the ability to have freedom, all of us. Mm. And actually, I actually, I believe that, you know, there's, there's, I think that there's, there's something even more radical about Jesus. I think that in many ways, what Jesus exists to do is to convert the darkness to light. Mm. So, you know, we see that in John, you know, that the, um, the darkness, um, uh, when you get, let me turn to John. And the darkness is not. And does not overcome it, right? Exactly. The light always wins. Yeah. Against the darkness, the light will always win. In other words, the yeah, the darkness is converted to light when it encounters light. So that's the, you know, when I when I when I find myself, you know, imagining Gethsemane, the reality I I was sharing this with you a few few days ago that I believe Jesus came for Caesar as well. Mm. I believe Jesus came for Pilate as well. Mm. And so to wage war against Caesar would literally be for Jesus, the king of the kingdom of God, to wage war against one who bears the image of God. Mm. Can Jesus wage war against the image of God? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, To do that would be to have a king, uh, basically would be to wage war with oneself. Yes. And you can't do that. Yeah. You can't do that and win. Yeah. So therefore, um, our God, the Supreme God, is more amazing than anything we can imagine. Mm. And therefore, our human ways of solving problems, of eliminating the problem so that we can actually be okay, mm. that is 
that is a that's a that's solution that presumes there is no God. Yes. Yeah. But there is. God is. And as a result, in the United States, we can have a North and a South. We can end the Civil War and not completely decimate the South, but rather let the South live, let the South rebuild itself. And um, and yes, we then have Jim Crow. And we have been fighting this whole this fight from the from the very beginning of who is actually created in the image of God, who is called to exercise dominion. When Jim Crow rose up, it was telling a lie. It was saying that only people deemed white by the state mm. were actually created in God's image and created to exercise dominion in the world. And and I'll tell you, and I think in my least faithful moments, boy, I just wish we would just get rid of all those people who don't who do believe that I am not fully created in the image of God. Boy, my life would be a lot easier then. Wouldn't that be nicer? That'd be nice. That that is when you get to Al Qaeda. That is when you get to terrorism. That's when you get to what's happening on our southern border right now. Yes. The ethnic cleansing that's happening in the United States, purging people that are unwanted in our territory. Um giving cover to police officers who shoot down black African-American women, men and children because of the fear of the other that exists within the hearts of people deemed white in the United States. But what God calls us to is a kind of faith that actually says it is okay for us. We will be okay. My soul is well. We are well even with that which we afraid, which we are afraid of in our midst, because God too is. Because God is, I don't have to fear. That's a different kind of politics. Yes. It yeah. leads us to a different kind of politics, a different solution for how the polis should live together. Yeah. And I think that from the very first page of the Bible, we are talking about that question of how should the polis live together? Hmm. So whether or not the Bible is a political thing, people say, you know, um, the Bible's not political. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Page one. Page one. Yeah. So, Lisa, what would you say to those um, uh, from that university group who say it's just about what's on the page? There's no mention of the Babylonian creation myths. There's not, and we would say, yes, there Actually, are. Actually, like, yes. There's yeah. a direct reference to mm -hmm. what's going on here. This mm -hmm. is the this is the punchline to a joke that's been told in larger. Uh, mm -hmm. But for people who would say, well, I've never heard that before and mm -hmm. I gave my life to Christ a decade ago. Right, um, right. Uh, I, I've never seen any of those things before um, and it sounds like you're taking a different direction what would you offer them in response? Because it's clear your reading does turn our world upside down. Yeah. Undeniably. If the image of God is found everywhere and the only dominion where to have is dominion that everybody is to share in so no one is dominated, that turns our world upside down. And if the very goodness that God is concerned with yes. is the very goodness in relationship between. between all yeah. of us, and not in me being perfect. Yes, that's right. Which is which we get from the Greeks, not the Hebrews. So suddenly if they kill off what um, I was terrified of in the dark waters, well, that means I can't be in right relationship with that. That has a place. It's just not over me. Yeah. It's 
in the proper order mm -hmm. alongside of me. Mm -hmm. What would you offer those who would say, well, but what about the quote-unquote plain reading of the text? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, what I would say is that, first of all, I'm a writer. Hmm. And so I understand that, that people write in order to be understood. Yeah. Things are written to be understood. It's not, you don't write something so that people don't understand it, right? Mm -hmm. So that means that generally speaking, in the language that it's written in, it should be able to be understood, mm -hmm. which means I have to do what it takes to understand the text within the context it was written. Mm -hmm. So I have to, excuse me, something in my nose. <laughs> um, I have to understand the context within which it was written. Mm -hmm. I have to, if I don't, then I'm not going to understand what might have motivated. What's the point of the author? What's the point the author's trying to make? Um, I have to understand the actual grammar. I have to understand the actual language, like the word tov. If I don't understand yeah. how it's used syntactically in and where it's also used, that it's usually used in the context of epic Hebrew poetry and that it's used as a connector of breaths, then I'm going to miss that when I'm actually doing my interpretation of the text. Yeah. Um, well, in other words, what I'm saying is that I do believe, I believe the word of God is absolutely true. Mm. I believe that it is true, but I also believe that it is text that needs to be discerned, understood, yeah. Yeah. worked to understand, and that it can be. And it's only after we have done the work to understand as much as we can the original intent of the author or others that we can then go to what are the implications of that, yeah. that message on my life today. Mm -hmm. What we normally do, though, is we skip that first part. We normally approach the text and we normally say, Okay, well, it says seven days, and so therefore it's it is seven days, and that's what that's the point. Um, and so my so then the the implication is I need to believe that. Boom, you know, we haven't done the work yeah. to actually understand who wrote this text, yeah. what was the context, what what is this seven day construct? Is there another place where I mean, was that a common way that that they that they formed uh, thought back then? Actually, it was. It yeah. was a, it's, a, it's a classic Hebrew epic poet, poetic structure, the seven-day yeah. structure, yeah. right? So, so we can we can understand the truth that is trying to be communicated in a text by digging deeper, and only after we've done that work, then asking, okay, now that we now have a, a, a more solid understanding of what was the writer trying to communicate, what was the writer's point. Now we can take that point and apply it to our lives today. Yeah, yeah. I'd say to the one who says, I want a simple read, I'd say, go read Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Don't even think about the Bible because the Bible's just not simple. Yeah. It's not a simple read. Yeah. It's, it is meant to be understood. Yes. But you have to do the work. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the workshops I run where we get people to actually act out these two different, um, the Babylonian creation oh, wow. play and actually, and to actually embody these wow. actions. And um, mm -hmm. what we use is if we're going to take this authoritatively, if we're going to take it seriously, if the Bible is going to be taken seriously and authoritatively by us, it must be taken poetically because 
these opening verses are just that poetry. Yeah, but but I would actually, but I would say though, there are there's poetry, there's song, there's story, mm. there's history, there's all there's there's lots of different kinds of literature in this book. Of course, in because there's what fifty six different books of this Bible, right? Yeah, yeah. Fifty six different authors or sets of authors, and so you know they have different they have different modes of communication. In other words. You know, if you're reading, obviously the Psalms are songs, yeah, and which means they're poetry. Yes. So if you're, if you see in in a in a song or in poetry, the sky blood red that day, like blood red, you don't actually think blood dripped from like it rained blood, like mm. actually blood fell from the sky. No, what that what that poet might be communicating is that that day was a particularly bloody day in the war that they were fighting. Yeah. Right. So that all understanding the kind of text that you're reading helps you to interpret the text. That's right. Yeah. And, which yeah. is why Gregory of Nyssa has no problem throwing shade on those right. who don't understand what's happening in that first chapter. Cause he's but, like, this is poetry y'all. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, science had not been invented yet. It wasn't. And, and as a result, History as we understand it today, mm. which is the science of understanding what happened, had not been invented yet. Yeah. So the authors, whoever it was, whether it was Moses or the priests coming out of Babylon, their concern was not the same concern we would have reading mm. the text. Our concern with what happened and when, mm -hmm. that is actually a modern era concern. Yeah. It's yeah. not a pre-modern yeah. concern. The pre-modern people were more concerned with what is true, not what happened. Yes. So they told stories and wrote poems and wrote songs and and told history in order to communicate truth, not fact, not scientific fact, because science was not invented yet. Mm. Yeah. I could do this all day. I know. I, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to have you back on. <laughs> Me and too. I'd love to... Um, I'll open it up. There's so many things we didn't touch on that I would love to hear oh, you I know, right? on. Yeah. But we should get in a taxi and go see Propaganda. Yes, let's um, do that. Let's do that. But <laughs> if people want to find you, Lisa, um, Freedom Road is yes. a wonderful podcast that I love listening to. The Very Good Gospel is your latest book out at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, of course, people can find you um, on social media uh, platforms yep. um, Lisa and then, Sharon Harper yeah. and the website is the two websites lisasharonharper.com um, is where you can go to find out just more personally about me and I'm going to have a blog that's starting pretty soon on cool. that and pretty cool and then also you can book me to speak there but then freedomroad.us um, freedomroad.us but it's not just for the US it's .us mm. um, and that's actually where we um, we have a consulting group that if you want consultants to actually help your group to do justice in more just ways come to us we'd love to help you out it's brilliant thanks for your work and witness thank you